1: Artificial intelligence, the superhuman. It is smarter than you are. And there's something inherently dangerous for the dumber party in that relationship. You just can't put the genie back in the bottle. Sam Harris, a neuroscientist, philosopher, author, podcaster. He
0: goes into intellectual territory where few others dare tread. Six years ago, you did a TED
1: talk. The gains we make in artificial intelligence could ultimately destroy us.
0: If your objective is to make humanity happy and there was a button placed in front of you and it would end artificial intelligence, what would you do?
1: Well, I would definitely pause it. The idea that we've lost the moment to decide whether to hook our most powerful AI to everything is just, oh, it's already connected to the Internet, got millions of people using it. And the idea that these things will stay aligned with us because we have built them, yet we gave them a the capacity to rewrite their code, there's just no reason to believe that. And I worry about the near-term problem of what humans do with increasingly powerful AI, how it amplifies misinformation. Most of what's online could soon be, soon be fake. Can we hold a presidential election 18 months from now that we recognize as valid? Right? Like, is it safe? And it just gets scarier and scarier. I worry we're just going to have to declare bankruptcy to the internet. The internet. internet. internet.
0: If your intuition is correct, are you optimistic about our chances of survival? Sam, six years ago you did a TED talk. Um, I watched that TED Talk a few times over the last week and the TED Talk was called Can We Build AI Without Losing Control Over It? Mm. In that TED Talk, you really discussed the idea whether um, AI, when it gets to a certain point of sentience and intelligence, will will wreak havoc on humanity. Mm. Six years later, where do you stand on, on it today? Do you think, are you optimistic about our chances of... Survival. Survival.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't say I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm worried about two species of problem here that are re- related. I mean, there's sort of the near term problem of just what humans do with increasingly powerful AI, and um, how it amplifies the the problem of misinformation and disinformation, and make and just makes it harder and harder to make sense of reality together um, and then there's just the the longer term concern about you know what's called alignment with with artificial general intelligence where we build AI that is is truly general and you know by definition superhuman in its competence and power and then the question is have we built it in such a way that is aligned in a in a durable way, with with our interests, and um, I mean, there's some people who just don't see this problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're kind of blind to it. When I'm in the presence of someone who doesn't have doesn't share this intuition, they, they don't resonate to it. I just don't understand what they're doing or not doing with their minds in that moment let's well, say i'm wrong about that well then you know it's just the other person's right and so we just we just have fundamentally different intuitions about about this particular point point. And, and the point is this if you're imagining building true artificial general intelligence that is superhuman and that is what everyone whatever their intuitions purports to be imagining here i mean there's there's you know there are people on both sides of the of the alignment debate or there are people who think alignment's a real problem and or and people who think it's a total fiction but everyone you know virtually everyone who's party to this conversation agrees that we will ultimately build artificial general intelligence that will be superhuman in its in its capacities and there's very little you have to assume to be confident that that we're going to do that there's it, really just two assumptions one is that intelligence is substrate independent right there's no it doesn't have to be made of meat it can be made in silico right and We've already proven that with narrow AI. I mean, there's just we obviously have intelligent machines, and you know your calculator and your phone is better than you are at arithmetic, and it's just that's that's some very narrow band of intelligence. So as we keep building intelligent machines, on the assumption that there's nothing magical about having a computer made of meat, the only other thing you have to assume is that we will keep doing this. We will keep making progress. And eventually we will we will be in the presence of something more intelligent than we are. And that's not assuming Moore's Law, it's not assuming exponential progress. It's just we just we just have to keep going, right? And when you look at the reasons why we wouldn't keep going, those are all just terrifying, right? Because intelligence is so valuable and we're so incentivized to have more of it. And every increment of it is is valuable. It's not like it only gets valuable when you get, you know, when you double it or, or 10x it. No, no, if you just get 3 more percent, right? That's that's uh that pays for itself. Um so we're going to keep doing this. Our failure to do it suggests that something terrible has happened in the meantime, right? We have had a world war, we've had a global pandemic far worse than COVID, we got hit by an asteroid, something happened that prevented us as a species from continuing to make progress in, in building intelligent machines, right? So absent that, we're going to keep going. We will eventually be in the presence of something smarter than we are. And this is where intuitions divide. My intuition, and it's shared by by, um, many people, I'm sure, and I know at least one who you've spoken to, my intuition is that there is something inherently dangerous for the dumber party in that relationship. There's, there's something inherently dangerous for the dumber species to be in, pre, in the presence of the smarter species. And we have seen this, you know, based on our entanglement with all other species, dumber than we are, right? Or certainly less competent than we are. Um, and by so by reasoning, by analogy, we, the, it would be true of something smarter than, than we are, Um People imagine that because we have built these machines, that is no longer true, right? But, and here's where my intuition goes from there, that is, that imagination is born of not taking intelligence seriously, right? Because what intelligence is, is a, a, you know, a mismatch in intelligence in particular, is a... A fundamental lack of insight into what the smarter party is doing and why it's doing it and what it will do next on the part of the dumber party. Hmm. Right. So, I mean, you just can imagine that by analogy, just imagine that the dogs had invented us as their, their super intelligent AIs, right, uh, for the purpose of making their lives better, you know, just securing resources for them, securing comfort for them, making, getting them medical attention. Um, it's been working out pretty well for the dogs for about 10,000 years, right? I mean, there's some exceptions. We've got, we mistreat certain dogs. But generally speaking, for most dogs, most of the time, humans have been a great invention, right? Now, it's true that the... The mismatch in our intelligence dictates a a, a fundamental blindness with respect to uh, what we've become in the meantime, right? So we have all these instrumental goals and things we care about that they cannot possibly conceive, right? They know that when we go get the leash and say it's time for a walk, they understand that particular part of the language game. But everything else we do when we're talking to each other and when we're we're on our computers or on our phones— they don't have the dimmest idea of what we're up to. And <laughs> if we ever, if, if something happened, if we, I mean, we love, the truth is we love our dogs. We make just irrational sacrifices for our dogs. We prioritize their health over all kinds of things that is just amazing to consider. And yet if we learn, if, if there was a, a new, you know, global pandemic kicking off and some Xenovirus was jumping from dogs to humans and it was just kind of super Ebola, right? It was just, it was 90% lethal. And it, this was just a forced choice between, I mean, what, what do you value more? Your the, the, the lives of your dogs or the lives of your kids, right? If that's if that's a situation we were in, it's totally conceivable. I mean, it's not a, you know, not by, by no means impossible. We would just kill all the dogs, right? And they would never know why, right? We would just, and it's because we have this layer of, of, Mind and culture and and just just the 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 new sphere, right? There's just this this realm of 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 mind that requires a requisite level of intelligence to even be party to, to even know exists that they have they have no idea it exists, right? And it's so this is a fanciful uh, analogy because the dogs did not invent us, but evolution invented us. Right. Evolution has coded us, you know, as I said, to survive and spawn, and that's it. Right, So evolution can't see everything else we've done with our time and attention and, and uh, all the values we've formed in the meantime and all the ways in which we have explicitly disavowed the program we've been given. Right? So evolution gave us a program, but if we were really going to live by the lights of that program— what would we be doing I and mean, we would be having as many kids as possible right and you know the, the guys would be going to sperm banks and donating their sperm and finding that like the best use of their time and attention i mean it's like the idea that you could have hundreds of kids for which you have no financial responsibility that would be the that should be the most rewarding thing that you could possibly do with your time uh, as a man and yet that's obviously not what we do and there are people who decide not to have kids and there are people who and and yet and everything else we do from you know, having podcast conversations like this to to curing diseases to I mean, just like literally everything we're doing with our you know with science with with culture is yes there are points of contact but between those, those products and our evolved capacities. Right? Like it's, not, it's, not just that, it's not magic, right? We are social primates that, that have leveraged certain ancient hardware to do new things. But evolution, the code that we've been given doesn't see any of that, right? And we've not been optimized to build democracies, right? Um, evolution knows nothing. It can know nothing. If evolution were a coder, there's just no there's no democracy maximization in that code, right? It's just it's not a it's, it's just not there. So the idea that these things will stay aligned with us because we have built them because if we have this origin story that we gave them their initial code, and yet we gave them a capacity to rewrite their code and build future generations of themselves, right? Um, there's just no reason to believe that. I see no... And and the, and the mismatch in intelligence is intrinsically dangerous. And you could see this by... I mean, it's Stuart Russell. I don't know if you had yeah. him on the podcast. He's a great um, professor of computer science at Berkeley. And he, he wrote... Literally co-wrote one of the, the most popular textbooks on AI. Um, I mean, he has some arresting analogies, which I think are, are good intuition pumps here. Um, and one is just... Think of how you would feel if you knew, like, let's, we got a, a communication from elsewhere in the galaxy and it was a message that we decoded and it said, people of earth, we will arrive on your lowly planet in 50 years, get ready, right? That, it, anyone who thinks that we're going to get super intelligent AI in, let's say 50 years. We're we're essentially in that situation, and yet we're not responding emotionally to it in the same way. If we if we received a communication from a, a a species that we knew, just by by fact by the sheer fact that they were communicating with us in this way, we knew they're more competent and more powerful and more intelligent than we are, right? And they're going to arrive, right? We would we would feel that we were on the threshold of the most. Momentous change in the history of of our species, and we would feel, but most importantly, we would feel that it's because this is a a, a relationship, an unavoidable relationship that's being foisted upon us. Right? It's like we like so a a new creature is coming into the room, right, with its own capacities, and now you're in relationship, and what and one thing is absolutely certain it is smarter than you are, right? By, by what factor? I mean, ultimately we're talking about by, by factors, you know, just by so many orders of magnitude, it's, it, it, our intuitions completely fail. I mean, even if even if it was just a difference in, in the time of processing, even if it, right. let, let's, let's say there was no difference in, in, in the actual, you know, native intelligence, but it's just processing speed, a million fold difference in processing speed is is just a phantasmagorical difference in capacity. So, so like just imagine we had ten smart guys in a room over there and they were working and thinking and talking a million times faster than we are. Right? Well, so they're they're no smarter than we are, <laughs> but they're just faster. And we talk to them once every two weeks just to catch up on, you know, what they're up to and what they want to do and whether they still want to collaborate with us. Well, 2 weeks for us is 20,000 years of analogous progress for them. Right so how could you how could we possibly hope to constrain the opinions and and collaborate with and negotiate with people just, no smarter than ourselves who are making 20,000 years of progress every time we make 2 weeks of progress. Right it's just it's 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 unimaginable and yet there are many people who don't they just think this is just fiction. Everything, I, all all the noises I've made in the last five minutes are just like a, a a new religion of fear, right? And it's just there's no reason to think that alignment is even a potential problem.
0: If your intuition is correct, and that analogy of us getting a signal from outer space that someone is coming in 30 years, which by the way, a lot of people that speak on this subject matter um, don't believe it's even gonna be 30 years until we reach that sort of singularity moment. I think they speak of artificial general intelligence. I've heard people like Elon say, you know, many fewer decades, 10 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, et cetera. If that is correct, then surely this is the most pressing challenge, conversation, issue of our time. And there's no logical reason that I can see to refute your intuition. There, I, I can't see a logical reason the, the rate of progress will will continue. Don't necessarily see anything that will wipe out or pause our rate of progress.
1: Um, I mean, let me just to to uh, be charitable to the other side here. There are other assumptions that they smuggle in that they that some people are. I mean, some do it without being aware of it, but some actually believe these assumptions and this spells the difference on, on this, on this uh, particular intuition. Um, So, so it's possible to assume that the more intelligent you get, the more ethical you become Hmm. by definition right now. And we might, you know, draw a somewhat more equivocal picture from just the human case where we see that, well, there's some very smart people who aren't that ethical, but, I believe there are people I mean I've talked to a few at least a few people who believe this there are people who assume that kind of in the limit as you push out into just just far beyond human levels of intelligence there's every reason to believe that all of the the uh, provincial creaturely failures of human ethics will be left behind as well it's like you're not like the the, the selfishness and the and the, and the basis for conflict like, like these are not going to, the apish urges of, you know, status seeking, uh, monkeys is, is just not, it's not going to be in the code. And as you push out into, into just kind of the omnibus genius of, of the coming AI, you're going to, there's, there's a kind of a, a sainthood that's going to come along with it. Right. And, and, and a wisdom that will come along with it. Now, I just think that's a that's quite a gamble. I I think th- I would take the other the other side of that bet, and and I would frame it this way: there have to be ways, in, in the space of all possible intelligences that are beyond the human, right? There's got to be more than one possible. There's got to be, it's like, just like there's many different ways to have a chess engine that's better than I am at chess. They're still they're they're different from each other, but they're all better than me, right? Um, there's got to be more than one way to have a superhuman artificial intelligence, and I would I would imagine there there are, you know, not not an infinite number of ways, but just a vast number of of, of there, in the space of all possible minds, there are many locations in that space beyond the human that are not aligned with human well being. Right? Mm-hmm. There's got to be more ways to build this unaligned then aligned, right? Mm-hmm. And what other people are smuggling into this conversation is the intuition that, no, no, once you get beyond the human, it's just going to get, it's just, you're going to be in the presence of, you know, just the Buddha who understands quantum mechanics and oncology and everything else, right? I just see no reason to think that that's so. And we, we could build something that is, again, taking intelligence seriously we're gonna build something that we're in relationship to. It's really intelligent in all the ways that we're intelligent. It's just better at all of those things than we are. It's by definition superhuman because the only way it wouldn't be superhuman, the only way it would be human level even for 15 minutes is if we didn't let it improve itself, if we wanted to just keep it stuck at, you know, at a, we, would just, we, we built a, a college undergraduate and we wanted just to keep it stuck there. But we would have to dumb down all of the specific capacities we've already built, right? Just like all, every AI we have, narrow AI, is superhuman for the thing it does. You know, it's it's it has access to all the information on the internet, right? It's, it's just like it's got perfect memory. It's, it can perfectly copy itself. When one part of the system learns something, the rest of the system learns it because it just can swap files, right? It can... It's. Um, you're, again, your phone is a, is, a, is a superhuman calculator. There's no reason to make it a, a, a calculator that is human level. Um, and so we're never going to do that. We're never going to be in the presence of human AGI. We will, we will be immediately in the presence of superhuman AGI. And then the question is how quickly it, it improves and how, far there, how much headroom is there to improve into. Um, on the assumption that you can get quite a bit more intelligent than we are, Right, that that we're nowhere near the, the summit of possible intelligence. You have to imagine that you're going to be in the presence of something that is again. It could be completely unconscious, right? This is, I'm not saying that there's lo- something that's like to be this thing, although there might be, and that's a totally different problem that's worth worrying about. But whether conscious or not, it is solving problems, detecting problems. Improving its capacity to do all of that in ways that we can't possibly understand, and the products of its increasing competence are always being surfaced. Right, so it's like it's we're, we've been we've been using it to change the world. We became we've, we've become reliant upon it. We built this thing for a reason. I mean, one thing that's been amazing about d- developments in recent months is that. Those of us who've been at all cognizant of the AI safety space for you know now going on a decade or more for some people always assumed that as we got closer to the end zone we'd become that the labs would become more circumspect, we'd be building this stuff air gapped from the internet, you know it's like we have this phrase air gapped from the internet like we thought this was a thing like you'd you this thing would be in a box, and then the question would be well, do we let it out of the box and let it do something, right? Like, is it safe? And how do we know if it's safe, right? And we thought we would have that moment. We thought it would would happen in a lab at Google or at Facebook or somewhere. We thought we would hear, okay, we've got something really impressive and now we just want it to touch the stock market or we want it to touch our medical data or we just want to see if we can use it. We're way past that, right? We've built this stuff already in the wild. It's already connected to the internet it's already got millions of people using it it already has apis it's already it's it's already doing work so that from an ai safety point of view that's it's amazing like we didn't even have the moment the the choice point we thought was going to be so fraught of course we didn't
0: we we because there was such pressing incentives for people to press forward regardless of that conversation Especially
1: But yeah, everybody's everyone everyone thought I mean I, I was never I was I I don't believe I was ever in conversation with someone I mean someone like Eliezer Yudkowski or or um Nick Bostrom or Stuart Russell who assumed we would be in this spot. Like I just everyone we because again yeah, I you know, I'd have to go back and look at those conversations, but there was so much time spent You know, it seems quite unnecessarily on this idea that circumspect. We'd make a certain amount of progress, and (laughs) circumspection would kick in. Like even the people who were who were doubters would become worried, and there and there would be like in the final yards. You know, as we go cross into the end zone, there'd be some mode where we could sort of slow down and figure it out and try like try to deal with the arms race dynamics. Like let's place a phone call to China. And 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 just like let's let's talk about this. We got something interesting. But the stuff is already being built in connection to everything, and there's already just endless businesses being being um, devised on the on the the back of this thing, and all the improvements are going to get plowed into it. And so just imagine what this looks like, even in su- in success, right? Like let's say it it just starts working wonders for us, and we just we get these great productivity gains, and, okay, so then we cross into the, into the, you know, whatever the singularity is, right, at whatever speed we find ourselves in the presence of something that is truly general. After all of this stuff is, all of this narrow stuff, uh, albeit superhuman narrow stuff, is, is something that we totally depend on. Right. Like every hospital mm. requires it and every air, airplane requires it and all of our missile systems require it. And it's we're just this is the way we do business. Um, there is no there's, there's nothing to turn off at that point. I mean, I just don't you know, it's like I guess. I mean, I put this to Mark Andreessen on my podcast and he said, yeah, you can turn off the Internet. And I mean, I don't I can't believe he was quite serious. I mean, yes, if you're North Korea, I guess you can turn off the Internet for North Korea. And that's why North Korea is like North Korea. But the idea that we could—I mean, it just the cost of turning off the internet n- now would be—I uh, think it would be unimaginable in, it, tr- in, the, in, the, in, the, in the economic, it, just the economic cost alone. Mm-hmm. The it, it just would be. Um, so anyway, I mean, just the, the the idea that we've we've lost the moment to decide whether to hook our most powerful AI to everything uh, because it's already being built more or less in contact with, if not everything, many so many things that you just can't put the genie back in the bottle. That is that is genuinely surprising to me. And um, yeah, I mean, incentives is, is tell the tale.
0: The, is this not the most pressing problem then? Because I, I, I was going to start this conversation by asking you the question about the thing that occupies your mind the most and the most important thing we should be talking about. And I... I, in part, assume the answer would be artificial intelligence, because the way that you talk Mm. about your intuition on this subject matter, you've got children. Yeah. You think about the future a lot. Um, If you can see this species coming to Earth in the next, even if it's in the next 100 years, um, it strikes me to be the the most pressing problem for humanity.
1: Well, I do. I'm as as interesting as I think that problem is and, and consequential as it is. I'm I'm worried that that life could become unlivable in the near term before we even get there. Like I'm just worried about the the misuses of narrow AI in the meantime. Just I'm worried about I mean, just just take the the current level of AI we have, you know, we have GPT-4. I I think within the next 12 months or 2 years, you know, let's say let's say we whatever GPT-5 is, we're going to be in the presence of something where Most of what's online that purports to be information could soon be fake. Right. Where like just most of the text you find on any topic is just fake. Right. Like someone has just decided, write me a thousand journal articles on why mRNA vaccines cause cancer and give me, you know, 150 citations. Write them in the in the style of nature and nature genetics and Lancet and JAMA. And and publish them. And just put them out there, right? one teenager could do that in five minutes with the right AI, right? It's like, it's just like, we're not, GPT-4 is not quite that, but GPT-5, you know, possibly will be that. I mean, it's like that, that is such a near-term advance, right? Or get, you know, just when you imagine knitting together the visual stuff like Mid Journey and Dolly um, and stable diffusion with with a large language model, just imagine the tool, again, this is, Maybe this is eighteen months away. Maybe it's three years away, but it's not thirty years away. The tool which where you can just say, "Give me a forty-five minute documentary on how the Holocaust never happened," f- filled with archival imagery. Give me, you know, Hitler speaking in German, and with the with the appropriate translations, and um, give it you know, give it in the style of Alex Gibney or Ken Burns, or and give me a, a ten thousand of those right? Like that, like that's all, all the friction for misinformation has been taken out of the system. And yeah, I worry we're just going to have to declare bankruptcy with respect to the internet. Like just like, we just are not going to be able to figure out what's real. And when you, when you look at how hard that is now with social media, uh, in the, in the aftermath of, of COVID and Trump, And how just the challenge of of holding an election that most of the population agrees was valid, right? That challenge already is is on the verge of being insurmountable in the U.S., right? I mean, it's just like it's easy to see us failing at that, AI aside. Now, when you add large language models to that and the more competent future version of it where it's just the most compelling deep fakes are indistinguishable from real data. Um, And everyone is siloed into their tribes where they're stigmatizing the information that comes from any other tribe. And we're just, and the internet is now so big a place that there really isn't the ordinary selection pressures where, where bad information gets successfully debunked so that it goes away. It's just, you can live in a conspiracy cult for the rest of your life, if you want to, you know, you can be queuing on all day long if you want to, and now we've got deep, deep fakes shoring all that up, and just spurious, you know, scientific articles shoring all that up. I, all of this just becomes a more compelling form of psychosis, and you know, culturally speaking, and so I, I'm just worried that it's it's going to get harder and harder. For us to cooperate with one another and collaborate, um, and that our politics will just completely break, and that'll, you know, offer an opportunity for lots of, you know, bad actors. And I mean, and leaving aside, you know, there's, there's cyber terrorism, and there's there's synthetic biology. That you know, the moment you get you turn AI loose on, on the on the prospect of, of uh, engineering viruses, and you know, all of that, it's like it, it, it potentiates. I mean, the, the asymmetry here is that it seems like it's it's always easier to break things than to fix them, or to prevent people, categorically prevent people from breaking them. And what we have with increasingly power, powerful technology is the ability for one person to create more and more damage, or one small group of people, right? And it was so it's just it just turns out it's hard enough to build a nuclear bomb that like one person can't really do it. You know, no matter how smart, you need a team, and you need a, you need it's traditionally you've needed state actors, and you need you need access to resources, and you need have to get the the fissile material, and it's hard enough. But this isn't this is being fully democratized. This tech, and so it's um, yeah, uh, it's, I worry about the near term chaos. I've
0: never found the narrow term consequences of artificial intelligence to be that in- interesting until now. Into right. what you said, that image of like the internet becoming unusable. So that was a real eureka moment for me because I've not, I've not been thinking about that.
1: Yeah, no, me too. I was I was just concerned about the AGI risk, and now, really in the in the aftermath of Trump and COVID, I've just I see the risk of, um. You know, it, if not losing everything, losing a lot that matters. Uh, just based on our interacting with just these very simple tools that that are mis- reliably misleading us I mean I'm just I'm amazed at what social media I forget about call well, I'm amazed at what Twitter did to me I mean you know even with all of my training and all you know with my head screwed on reasonably straight I mean it's, it's amazing to say it but almost all of the truly bad things that have happened to me in the last decade that just really like just destabilized relationships and and just priorities and really kind of got plowed back into me became a kind of professional emergency you know stuff i had to respond to you know in writing or on podcasts it was all twitter it was my my engagement with Twitter was the thing that produced the chaos, and it was completely unnecessary. Um, and it was just it was amplifying a kind of signal for me that I felt compelled to pay attention to because I was on it. and I was trying to communicate with people on it. And I was getting certain communication back, and it was giving me a picture of the rest of humanity, which I now think was is fundamentally misleading. But it was it was still consequential in its, like, I, even believing that it was, at a certain point, believing that it was misleading wasn't enough to inoculate me against the delusion of the kind of the, the opinion change that was being forced upon me. Um, and I was feeling like, okay, like, these people are becoming unrecognizable. Like, I know some of these people. I've had dinner with some of these people, and their behavior on Twitter is is appearing so deranged to me and so, in such bad faith. Um that people are you know, people who I know to be non-psychopaths are starting to behave like psychopaths, at least on Twitter, and I'm becoming similarly unrecognizable to them. That it's just again, it it, it, it all felt like a, a psychological experiment to which I hadn't consented and which I enrolled myself somehow because it was it was what everyone was doing in 2009, um, and I spent you know 12 years there. Getting some signal and responding to it. Uh, and it's not to say that it was all bad. I mean, I read a bunch of good articles that got linked there, and i you know, I discovered some interesting people. But uh, the change in my life after I deleted my Twitter account was so enormous. I mean, it's embarrassing to admit it. I mean, it's just it's like it's like getting out of a bad relationship. I mean, it was just it was a fundamental um just freedom from from uh, this this chaos monster that was it was always there ready to disrupt something but based on its own dynamics and when did you delete it um yeah like december i think it was december i would and i'm not someone
0: that really takes sides on things i like to try and remain in the middle i think politically yeah, I...
1: So, so you must have a very different twitter experience than i was having no no
0: so I don't tweet uh-huh. anything other than this podcast trailer. I don't tweet anything else. Right, okay. So I just, the, the only thing you'll see on my Twitter is the podcast trailer, that's it. Yeah. And for the, all the reasons you've described, and more interestingly, I wanted to say in the last eight months, as someone that tries to be, doesn't get caught up too much in the media, oh, Elon bought this, it's 100% gone in that direction. As in, my timeline now is, I say it to my friends all the time, and some of my friends who are, again, I think are nuanced and balanced have said to me, the, there's something that's been turned up in the algorithm to increase engagement that has planted me in an unpleasant echo chamber that I didn't desire mm. to be in. And if I wasn't co- somewhat conscious, I would 100% be in there. My timeline, I, my friend tweeted the other day, my friend Cackle tweeted, he's never seen more people die on his Twitter timeline than he has in the last six months. They're prioritizing mm. videos. so You're seeing a lot of like death in CCTV footage that I've never seen before. And mm. then the, the debate around gender... Um, Politics, right-leaning subject matter has never been more right down your throat. Yeah, because yeah. Been, it's been—it's almost like something in the algorithm has been switched, where it's now—it's now like people have been let out of the asylum. That's the only way I can describe it, and it's made me mm-hmm. retract even more. So when Zuckerberg announced Threads the other the other couple of weeks ago, it was kind of like a a life raft right out yeah. of a, out of the Titanic, um, and I really, really mean that and i'm not someone to get easily caught up in narrative you know as it relates to social media platforms it's been my industry for a decade but what i've seen on twitter and it's actually made me believe this hypothesis i had five years ago where i thought there would be um i thought the 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 journey of social networking would be would have way more social networks and they'd be more siloed i thought we'd have one for our neighborhood our football club and now i believe that even more than ever
1: yeah that, that seems right and I, and I think it's. i mean it's, whether it's possible to have a truly healthy social network that people want to be in and it's they have good reason to be there and it's it's uh i, I don't know if it's possible uh, i'd it, like to think it is but it's um i think there's certain things you you have to clean up uh, at the outset that's so supposed to make it possible i mean i think i think anonymity is a bad thing i think um probably being free is a bad thing i think for you if you know you sort of get what you pay for uh, online and if it's if it's uh i just think there 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 might be ways to set it up that where it would be better but
0: i don't think it would be popular what was that I, I think with the thing that makes it popular makes it to- toxic
1: right right
0: and even the anonymity piece i've played this out a couple of times in my mind and the rebuttal i always get is well there's people in syria yeah. who have yeah. news to break important news to break and they they'd be hung if they so, we need an anonymous version of the social internet.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, that, that, I guess there could be some exception there. But um, I don't know. It, it just doesn't, it actually doesn't interest me because I just feel such a different sense of my being in the world as a result of not paying attention to the my online simulacrum of of myself it's 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 a um because so so twitter was the only one i use like i was on i've been on facebook this whole time i've been on i think i I guess i'm on instagram too but like my team just uses those as marketing channels you know it's just like you it sounds like that's the way you use twitter now but twitter was the the one that i decided okay this is going to be me i'm going to be posting here i'm going to you know if if i've made a mistake i want to hear about it you know it's like I, and I, I just wanted to use it as as actual an uh, actual basis for communication um and for the longest time it actually felt like a valid tool for, in that respect you know it, re- it reached a crisis point i decided this is just pure toxicity there's just no reason even the good stuff can't possibly make a dent in the bad stuff so i just deleted it and then i was i was returned to the real world Right where I where I actually live, and to books and to I mean I'm, I'm online all the time anyway, but uh, but it's not having the it's, it's the time course of reactivity when you don't have social media when you don't when, and you don't have a place to put this this instantaneous hot take that you're tempted to put out into the world because there's literally no place to put it like if like for for me if I have some reaction to something in the news. I have to decide whether it's worth talking about it in my next podcast that I might be recording, you know, four days from now. And rather often people have been just bloviating about this thing for four solid days before I ever get to the microphone. And I, then I get to think, well, is, is it still worth talking about? And most, mo- almost nothing survives that test <laughs> anymore, right? So it's like the conversation's moved on. So there's actually no place for me to just type this thing that either you know, takes me 10 seconds and then rolls out there to get to, to detonate in the minds of, you know, my friends and enemies to o- opposite effect. Uh, and then I see the, the result of all that, you know, on a, again, on a, this sort of reinforcement loop of every 15 minutes. Um, not having that is such a relief that I just don't even know why I would. So like when threads was announced, I I wasn't, I think I'm, I'm on threads too, but it's not me. It's just, you know, just again, another marketing channel. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I I feel such relief not exercising that muscle anymore where it's like, I, I, you know, I don't know how often I was checking Twitter, but it was, I was, you know, I was not checking it Just to see what was happening to me, or what the response to my last thing I tweeted. I was checking it a lot because it was my newsfeed. It's like I'm Mm. following, you know, 200 smart people. They're telling me what they're paying attention to, and so I'm fascinated. So yeah, well, yeah, I want to see that next article or that next video. Just that engagement and the endless opportunity to comment and to put my foot in my mouth, or put my foot in someone else's mouth, or have someone put their foot. It's just. not having that has been uh, such a relief that i would be i mean it's not impossible but i would be very cautious in reactivating that because it it was it was so much noise and again it would it it created there's so much it it became a uh, it became an opportunity cost but it it became a just this endless opportunity for misunderstanding but especially misunderstanding of me and you know everything I've been putting out into the world, and then my sense that I had to react to it, mm-hmm. and then you just kind of plow that back into the you know that that becomes the basis for further misunderstanding, um, and it just it constantly was giving me the sense that there's something there's something I need to react to on my podcast in an article on Twitter that it's just this is a valid signal. Like this is, this is, this is like, this is a five alarm fire. This is like, you got to stop everything. Like you're by the pool on the one vacation you're taking with your family that summer. And this thing just happened on your phone that like it can't wait, right? Like you actually have to pay attention because it's like the conversation is happening right now. And so it was a kind of addiction to information and right. You know, on some level reputation management or, 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 um, and it was just i mean just yeah, to just be free of it is is mean, such a relief apart from like you know health issues with certain family members virtually the only bad things that have happened to me have been a, a result of my engagement with twitter over the last 10 years um, so it's just it's just you know i i you know i guess i'm if i'm a masochist i would be back on twitter but like that would be the only reason to do it Narrow AI, I asked you the
0: question a second ago, which we, um, I really wanted to get a solution to it because I'm mildly terrified. Mm. I completely believe your, believe your, um, the logic underneath your opinion that narrow AI will cause this, um, destabilization and unusability of the internet. So just focusing on narrow AI, what, what would you consider to be a solution to prevent us getting to that world where misinformation is rife to the point that it Mm. can destabilize society, politics, and culture?
1: Well, I think it's something I've been asking people about on my podcast because it's it's, it's not actually my wheelhouse and I I would just need to hear from experts about what's possible technically here. But um, I'm I'm imagining that paradoxically or ironically, this could uh, usher in a new kind of gatekeeping that we're going to rely on because like the provenance of information is going to be so important. I mean, the, 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 the assurance that a video has not been manipulated or there's not a, a, just a pure confection of, of, uh, deep fakery. Right. So you get, so it could be that we're, we're meandering into a new period where you're not going to trust a photo unless it's come, it's coming from, you know, Getty images or, you know, the New York times has some, Story: How they, about how they have verified every photo in their that they put in their newspaper. They have a process, and you know. So if you see a, 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 a video of of Vladimir Putin seeming to say that he's declaring war on the U.S., right? I think most people are going to assume that's fake until proven otherwise. It's like it's just it's just going to be too much fake stuff, and it's going to be it's all going to look so good. That the New York Times and every other you know organ of media that we have relied upon, um, as imperfect as they've been of late, they're going to have to figure out what the tools are whereby they can say, okay, this is actually a video of Putin, right? And if the New—I mean, I'm not going to be able to figure it out on my own, right? If the New York Times doesn't have a process or CNN doesn't have a process be- that they go through before they say, okay, Putin really said this and so this is we have to now react to this because this is real. Um, whatever that process is and you know whether it's there's some kind of digital watermark that you know that's connected to the blockchain, that I mean, there's, there's some tech implementation of it that can be fully democratized where you by just being in the latest version of the Chrome browser, can know that you're, you you can differentiate you know real and fake video, say? I don't know what the implementation will be, but I just I just know we're going to get to some spot where it's going to be all right. We have to declare epistemological bankruptcy. We don't know what's real. We have to assume anything, especially lurid or agitating, is fake until proven otherwise. So prove otherwise, and that's you know that that'll be a, a resetting of something. I don't know what we do with that in a in a world where. We really don't have that much time to react to certain things that are, you know, a, a video of Putin saying he's launched his big missiles is something that, you know, 30 minutes from now we would we would understand whether it's real or not. I mean, forget about, again, forget about everything we just said about AI. Look at all of our legacy risks. Look at I mean, the risk of nuclear war. The, the The risk of stumbling into a nuclear war by accident has been hanging over our head for Seventy years. I mean, we, we've got this old tech. We've got these wonky radar systems that throw up errors. We've we we have moments in history where, you know, one Soviet sub commander decided based on his just gut feeling, just his common sense, that the data was almost certainly an error, and he decided not to pass the the the, the obvious evidence of a an American ICBM launch up the chain of command, knowing that the chain of command would say, okay, you have to fire, right? And he reasoned that if the U.S. was going to attack the Soviet Union, they would launch more than, I, mean, I think in this case, it looked like there were four missiles. That was the radar signature. If the U.S. is going to launch a first strike against the, the Soviet Union, in when, when, this was like the mid-'80s, um, they're going to launch more than four missiles, Right, this has to be this. This has to be bad data, right? So, that, so that, but you know, so if we automate all this, will we automate it to systems that have a, a that kind of common sense, right? Um, but we've been perched on the on the edge of the abyss, based on this this the possible. Forget about malevolent actors, you know, who might decide to have a nuclear war on purpose. We have the possibility of of accidental nuclear war. You add this cacophony of misinformation and deep fake to all of that. And it just gets scarier and scarier. And this is just, this is not even AI. This is just, you know, you know, narrow AI amplified misinformation.
0: How do you feel about it?
1: Well, I mean, this is the thing that worries me. I mean, I I worry about the next election. You know, I think the next president, if we can run the 2024 election in a way that most of America acknowledges was valid that will be an an amazing victory, you know. Whatever the outcome, I mean, obviously, I, th- I'm, I would not be looking forward to a Trump presidency. But um, I think even more fundamental than that is: can we hold a presidential election eighteen months from now that is that we recognize as valid, right? Like that, I th- I don't know. I don't know what kind of resources are being spent on on uh, that particular performance but that is hugely important and i don't think um our near-term experiments with ai is going to make that easier
0: why is it so important
1: well it's just i mean if you think the maintenance of of uh a valid democracy in in the world's lone superpower is is uh, of minor importance i um i'd like to drink the tea you're drinking (laughs) Uh, are you, but are you optimistic. It, I mean, I I'm, I can't say I'm optimistic. I'm you know it's it's a paradoxical state I'm in because I, I definitely have, I I tend to focus on what's wrong or might be wrong. I tend to, I think, have a a pessimistic bias, right? Like I I, I tend to notice what's wrong as opposed to what's right. You know, I mean that that's my um. That's my bias, but. I'm actually very happy, right? Like I have a very a very good life. I'm just like everything is is I just I'm incredibly lucky. I'm surrounded by great people. It's like it's just it's all great. And yet I see all of these risks on the horizon. So I'm like I'm not um I just I have a, a very high degree of well-being at this moment in my life and yet I like the, what's on the television is scary. And so it's it's a it's a very interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. You know, I will be I'll be very relieved if we have a. Uh, I just I feel like we're in a very weird spot. I mean, like the I haven't seen a a full post mortem on the COVID pandemic that has fully encapsulated what I think we what I think happened to us there. But my my vague sense is that we didn't learn a whole hell of a lot. I mean, basically what we learned is we're really bad at responding to this kind of thing. This was a challenge that, that just fragmented us as a society. It could could have brought us together. It didn't. Um, and it, it amplified all of the, the divisions in our society politically and, and economically and, tribally in all all kinds of ways, the role of misinformation and disinformation and all of that was, was all too clear. And I think just getting worse. So I think, you know, as a dress rehearsal for some future pandemic that's, that is inevitably going to come and is, you know, could well be worse. I think we failed this dress rehearsal. And, you know, I, I have to hope that at some point our institutions will reconstitute themselves so as to be Obviously trustworthy and engender the kind of trust we actually need to have in our institutions. Like well, we need a CDC that not only that we trust, but that is trustworthy that we that we that we're right to trust, right? And so, and so it is with an FDA and every other you know institution that that uh, is relevant here. And we don't quite have that, and half of our society thinks we don't have that at all, mm. right? And and so it's. Um, we have to rebuild trust in institutions somehow, and I, I just think, you know, we have a lot of work to do but to even figure out how to make an, an increment of progress on that score, because we're, um, again, the siloing of, of of large constituents into alternate information universes is just, just not functional, and that's so much of what social media has done to us, and Alternative media. I mean, like, you know, I call it, you know, you and I are podcasters, but I call it podcastistan, right? I mean, we have this this landscape of, I mean, there's now whatever, a million plus podcasts and there's, you know, email newsletters, and everyone has now just decided to curate their information diet in a way that's just bespoke to them. And you can stay there forever and you're getting, you're getting one slice of, and it could be, a, you know, a completely fictional slice of of reality, and um, we're losing the ability to converge on a on a common picture of what's going on. And you, <laughs> so and did that sound optimistic? No. Yeah, I, I didn't hear the optimism in there. You tell me.
0: No, I, I no, I, but I, I again, I can't refute anything you've said on a, like a logical basis. It all sounds um, like that is the direction of travel that we're going in. Unfortunately. Um I have faith that there'll be surprising positives mm. there always tends to be surprising positives that we also didn't
1: factor in um well, yeah, i mean, it's easy to see i mean if there's anything if there's any significant low hanging fruit technologically or or scientifically that could be AI uh enabled for us I mean just take like you know a, a cure for cancer. A cure for Alzheimer's. Right? I mean, just having one thing like that, right? That would be such an enormous good, um, and that so that that is that's what that's why we can't get off this ride, and I mean, that's why there is no break to pull. I mean, because because the, the value of intelligence is so enormous. I mean, it is it is just. It's not everything. I mean, it's not, the, you know, there's, there are other things we care about and are right to care about beyond intelligence. I mean, love is not the same thing as intelligence, right? But intelligence is the thing that can safeguard everything you love, right? Like, I mean, even if you think the whole point in life is to just get on a beach with your friends and your family and just hang out and enjoy the sunset, okay, You don't have to augment, you you don't need superhuman intelligence to do any of that, right? you're, you're, You're fit to do it exactly as you are. You could have done that in the 70s and it would just be just as good a beach and they'd be just as good friends. But every gain we make in intelligence is the thing that safeguards that opportunity for you and everyone.
0: You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. Else. how would you do, i feel like we've not defined the term artificial general intelligence from my mm. understanding of it it's when the the intelligence can think and make decisions almost like a human
1: yeah i mean loosely i mean this 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 is a kind of just a semantic problem but I mean intelligence can mean many things but you know loosely speaking it it's the ability to solve problems uh and meet goals make decisions um in response to a changing environment, in response to data. Um, And the general aspect of that is an ability to do that in in many different situations, all the sort of situations we encounter as people, and to have one's capacity in one area, not, you know, as I get better at deciding whether or not this is a cup, I don't magically get worse at deciding whether you know you just said a word, right? Mm-hmm. It's like I can do, but it's like I can do multiple things in multiple channels. That's not something we had in our artificial systems for the longest time because we were everything was bespoke to the task. We'd build a chess engine, and it couldn't even play tic tac toe. All it could do was play chess, and we get and we and we just would get better and better in these in these piecemeal narrow ways, and then. Things began to change a few years ago, where you'd get, you know, with like DeepMind, would it would have its algorithms that were, uh, you know, the same algorithm with slightly different tuning could play Go, right, or it could, you know, it could solve a, a protein folding problem as opposed to just playing chess, right? And it became the best in the world at chess, and it became the best in the world at Go, and, um, and amazingly, I mean, to take you know, Alpha what Alpha Zero did it you know before alpha 0 all the chess algorithms were they just had all of our chess knowledge plowed into them they had studied every human game of chess and they just it was just you know it was it was a bespoke chess engine alpha 0 just played itself i think for like 4 hours right it just it just had the rules of chess and then it played itself and it became better not merely the, than every other every person who's ever played the game it became better than all the chess engines that had all of the the all of our chess knowledge ploughed into them so it's a fundamentally new moment in in how you build an in, in intelligent system and it promises this this possibility again it, it, this inevitability the moment you admit that we will eventually get there the, the moment the moment you admit that it's It can be done in silico, and the moment that you admit that we will just keep going unless a catastrophe happens, and those two things are so easy to admit that I I just don't, at this point, I don't see any place to stand where you're not forced to admit them, right? I I don't see any neuroscientific or cognitive scientific argument for substrate dependence for intelligence, um, given what we've already built, and... Again, we're, we're going to keep going until something stops us, right? We'll hit some immovable object that prevents us from releasing the next iPhone. But other, otherwise, we're going to keep going. And then, yeah, so then, it, then we'll, whatever general will mean in that first case, there'll, there'll be a case where we've built a system that is so good at everything we care about that is functionally general. Now, maybe it's missing something. Maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's missing something that we don't even have a name for. You know, we're missing all kinds of, there there are possible intelligences that we haven't even thought about because we just haven't thought about them. There are ways to section the universe, undoubtedly, Mm. that we can't even conceive of because we are just, we have the minds we have.
0: Elon was asked a question on this by a journalist. The journalist said to him, in a world where you believe that to be true that artificial general intelligence is around the corner when your kids come to you and say daddy what should i do with my life to mm-hmm. find purpose and meaning what advice do you now give them if you hold that intuition to be true mm-hmm. that it's around the corner what do you say to your children when they say what should i do with my life to create purpose and meaning and
1: did, did you say that elon answered this yeah. question yeah what did he say
0: it's one of the most he- chilling moments in an interview i think i've seen in recent times mm-hmm because he stutters. He goes silent for about 15 seconds, which is very un-Elon. He stutters. He stutters. Um, He stutters a bit more. Like, he can't... uh, 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 uh. And then he says he thinks he's living in suspended disbelief because if he really thought about it too much, what's the point? He says, Mm -hmm. what's the point of me building all these cars? He was in his Tesla factory. What's the point of me building all these cars? And what's the point? I do think that sometimes. So I think I have to live in, as his words were, suspended disbelief.
1: Right. Well, I would encourage him to ask what's the point of spending so much time on Twitter, because that he could clearly benefit from rethinking that. But um, that aside, I mean, my, my answer to that is, and I think other people have echoed this of late, um, I mean, it's sort of surprising to me. I mean, my answer is that this begins to privilege a return to the the humanities as a kind of a core, like the center of, of of mass intellectually for us, because when you look at what we're really good at, and it's among the last things that can be plausibly automated. Uh, and if if we automate it, we may cease to care about it. So it's like learning to write good code is something that is going to be it's being automated now it's it it, is you know i'm I'm not a programmer but um you know i have it on good authority that that already these large language language models are improving code and something like half the time they're writing better code than than people uh that's all going to become like chess right it's just it's going to be better than people ultimately um so being a software engineer is something that you know, and being a radiologist and being like those, those things, it's easy to see how AI just cancels those professions or at least makes one person, you know, so effective at using AI tools that you know, one person can do the work of a hundred people so that you got 99 people who don't have to be doing that job. Um, but creating art and, you know, writing novels and being a philosopher and, uh, Talking about what it means and to live a good life and how to do it, it's like that's that's something that if we we have we have to look at those we have to look at where we're going to care that we're actually in relationship to and in dialogue with an, another person who's who we know to be conscious, or Like where we don't care about that we're not going to care. We're going to want just the best version of it. Like, I don't care. If the cure for cancer comes from an AI, an insentient AI, I do not give a shit. I just want the cure for cancer, right? I'd like, there's no added value that when where I find out, okay, the person who gave me this cure really felt good about it. And he's, you know, he had tears in his eyes when he figured out the cure. Every engineering problem is like that. We want safer planes. We want, you know, we just want things to work. We're not sentimental about the, the artistry that went into all of that. Uh, and when the difference, when the gulf between the best and the mediocre gets big and consequential, we're just going to want the best, we're just going to want the best, all the way down the line. But what is the best novel, right? What is the best podcast conversation? What is the, And can you subtract out the the conscious person From that and still think it's the best and and so like someone once sent me a um what purported to be i didn't even listen to it so i don't i'm not even sure what it was but it looked like it was an ai generated conversation between alan watts and terrence mckenna Mm -hmm. right both guys who i love i remember i I didn't know either of them but fans of both have listened to hundreds of hours of both talk as far as i know they never met each other it would have been a fascinating conversation Um, I realized when I, lo- when I looked at this YouTube video, I realized I simply don't care how good this is, because I only care if it was actually Alan Watts and Terrence McKenna talking. Like I, the, a simulacrum of Alan Watts and, and, and Terrence McKenna in this context, I don't care about. Right. So uh, uh, another use case I I stumbled upon. I was playing with with ChatGPT and I asked it, you know, the causes of World War II you know, give me 500 words on the cause of World War II. And it gives, it gives you this perfect little, you know, bullet-pointed essay on the cause of World War II. That's exactly what I want from it. That's, that's fine. That's like, I, I don't care that it, it was, there was no person behind that typing. But when I when I think, well, do I want to reread Churchill's, you know, history of World War II? It's on my shelf to read. It's, I, you know, it's kind of one of these aspirational uh, sets of books. Haven't read it yet. Um, I actually want to read it because Churchill wrote it, right? Like that, that's why. And if you could give me an AI version of Churchill saying this is in the style of Churchill, it's very even Churchill scholars say this sounds like Churchill. I actually don't care about it. Like, I, like that's not the use. I, I'll, I'll take the generic use of you know, give me the cause of World War Two. Mm. The fake Churchill is profoundly uninteresting to me. The real, real Churchill, even though he's dead. Is is interesting to me.
0: So the, the rebuttal I give here, and this is what yeah. my mind
1: is doing, is yeah. it's saying this
0: the distinction you're you're presenting, the, the difference I see is that in the case of the conversation between two people you respect that has been generated by AI, someone has signaled to you that that it, that it is fake. If you remove right. that, because say Churchill thought, why would I write a book when I could just click a button and this thing will write it in my in my voice, in my tone of voice, with my, you know, with the entire, the, the entire back catalog of things I've written before and it will produce my my account and it will save me time. So I'll just click a button, my publisher, may, maybe will do it for me. And then I'll sell that to Sam on the basis that it is um, yeah. my thoughts, which I, imagine, I, I can imagine a very near future. If we just do it by percentage, how many books are gonna be increasingly written by oh, yeah. artificial intelligence? To the point that when you look at a shelf, I imagine at some point in the future, if the intelligence does increase, um, by any measure, that most of it would be words strung together by artificial intelligence, and it will be selling oh, yeah. potentially better than the words written by humans. So again, when we go back to the conversation with your your your, your children, there might not be a career there either, because artificial right. intelligence is faster, can produce more, can test and iterate on whether it sells better, clicks gets more clicks, it can write the headline, create the picture, write the content, and then I can just take the check because I put my name to it. Yeah. So I go even in that regard, what remains?
1: Well, so in the limit, what I think we're imagining is a world where, and so none of the ter- none of the terrifyingly bad things have happened. So it's just all working. We're just producing a ton of great stuff that is better than the human stuff, and people are losing their jobs. So we got a, we got a labor disruption, but we're not talking about any other kind of political catastrophe or, or you know, cyber apocalypse, um, much less uh, AGI destroying everything. Um, then I think we just need a different uh, economic assumption and, and ethical intuition around the, the value of work. I mean, we're li- our default norm now in a capitalist society is you have to figure out something to do with most of your time that other people are willing to pay you for, right? You have to figure out how to add value to other people's lives such that you reliably get paid. Otherwise you might die, right? Like we've got a social safety net, but it's, it's pretty meager. You know, we're not, we're, there are cracks you can fall through. You could wind up homeless and we're, and we're not going to figure out what to do about that all too well, you know? And, um, your, so your claim upon your existence among us is you finding something to do with your time that other people will pay you for, right? And now we've got artificial intelligence removing some of those opportunities, creating others, but in the limit, and I do think it is different, from, I think analogies to other moments in, in technological history are fundamentally flawed. I think this is a a technology which in the limit will replace jobs and not create better new jobs in in their wake right it's just this just cancels the need for for human labor ultimately and it, strangely it replaces some of the the highest status most cognitively intensive jobs first hmm. right you know it replaces replaces Elon Musk before it replaces your electrician or your plumber or your masseuse way before, right, so we have to internalize the the reality of that if if again, this is in success. this is not this is all good things happening, right um, and we have to have a new ethic, we have to have a new economics based on that ethic, which is you know u b i is one solution to this, like you shouldn't have to work to survive,
0: right universal basic income yeah there's
1: there's just so much abundance now being created we have to figure out how to spread this wealth around right we've got a cure for cancer over here we've got perfect you know photovoltaic uh uh driven economies over here where it's like we've solved the climate change issue you know we're just pulling wealth out of the ether essentially um we've got you know, nanotechnology that is just birthing whole new industries Yeah, but it's all being driven by AI. We don't, you know, there's no room in this. Whenever you put a person in the in the chain in the decision chain, <laughs> you're just adding noise. This is the best thing. This should be the best thing that's ever happened to us. This is just like God handing us the perfect labor-saving device, right? The machine that can build every other machine that can do anything you could possibly want we should figure out how to spread the wealth around in that case right this is just powered by sunlight no more wars over resource extraction it can build anything we can all be on the beach just hanging out with our friends and family right like like did
0: you believe we should do universal base, basic income where everybody's given like a monthly some, check something
1: some, we have to break this connection again this is this is what will have to happen in the presence of this kind of labor force dislocation enabled by all of this going perfectly well, right? Like this, again, just just this pure success, just AI is just producing good things. And the only bad thing is, it's putting all these people out of work, you know it's coming for your job eventually
0: i've heard this and i've i've my issue with it and my rebuttal when i talk to my friends about this idea of universal basic income when we you know we hand out enough cash or resources to people so that they're stable which i'm not necessarily against but just just want to play with it a little bit is humans seem to have an innate an innate desire for purpose and meaning yeah. and we seem to be designed and built psychologically for labor and for a discomfort and but,
1: but it doesn't have to be labor that's tied to money Right? Yeah, like like right. it can be like we we will get our status in other ways and we'll get our meaning in other ways. And Again, this is all these are all just stories we tell ourselves. I mean like you know you're talking to a person who knows it's possible to be happy actually doing nothing, right? Like like just sitting in a room for a month, right? And just staring at the wall, right? Like that like, done it. like that's possible, right? So so and yet that's most people's worst nightmare. You know, I mean, it's solitary confinement in a prison is considered a torture, right? And I know people who spent Twenty years in, in a cave, right? So it's like there's a there are capacities here that are worth talking about, but um, just more more commonly, I think we will we'll, we want to be entertained, we want to have fun, we want to be with the people we love, we want to be useful in relationship, uh, and insofar as that gets uncoupled from the necessity of working to survive, right? It doesn't all just go away. We just need new norms and new ethics and new conversations around what we do on vacation, right? I mean it's like you so like what what you're imagining is that if you put everyone on vacation on the best vacation, you can make the vacation as good as possible. A majority of people will eventually be miserable because they're, they're not back at work, right? And yet they're, most of these people are working so that they have enough money so that they could finally take that vacation, right? We will figure out a new way to be happy on the beach, right? I mean, like, if you can't, if you get bored with Frisbee, we will figure something else out that is fun. You know, you, you can read, uh, you know, I'll be able to read the Churchill history of World War II on the beach and not be rushed by any other imperative, because I'm, you know, I, I I'm happily retired, right? Because my AI is creating the thing that is solving all my economic problems, right? Um, you know, we should be so lucky as to as to have that be our problem. Like, how to be happy in conditions of no economic imperative, no basis for political strife on the on the basis of scarce resources, and. No question about the, the the question of survival is off the table, with respect to what one, what, what one does with one's time and attention. Right, you can be as lazy as you want and you'll still survive. You can be as unlucky as you as you want and you and you'll still survive. I mean, the 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 awful situation we're in now is that differences in luck mean everything. Right. You know, someone is born in a, in, in, without any of the advantages that we have. We don't have a, we don't have a system, we don't have an economic system that reliably gives them every advantage and opportunity, opportunity that they could have. Right. It's like, so it's, we just, we, um, We don't have the, you know, we apparently, we've convinced ourselves we either don't have the resources or we've convinced ourselves we don't have the resources. We don't have the incentive such that we access the resources so as to actually come to the help of people we could help, right? I mean, the idea that people starve to death is just, it's unimaginable, and yet it still happens. You know, that's not a scarcity problem. It's a political problem wherever it happens. And yet all of this is tied to a system where everyone has convinced themselves that is normal to really have one's survival be in question if one doesn't work right and and by choice or by accident like like if you get if you haven't you know I think I think it's still true that in the at least in the U.S. this is almost certainly not true in the U.K. but in the U.S. the most common reason for a, a personal bankruptcy is um, you know overwhelming medical expense that just comes upon you for whatever reason you know your wife gets cancer you guys go bankrupt solving the cancer problem or failing to solve the cancer problem and now everything else unravels right and we we have a society which thinks yeah well unlucky you you know that's you know if you wind up homeless just don't sleep in front of my store because i need my you know you're going to hurt my business um like the you know, successful AI that cancels lots of jobs would be—it would be—it would only be canceling those jobs by virtue of producing so many good things, so much value for everybody that we would we would have to figure out how to spread that wealth around. Otherwise, we yeah. Otherwise, we would have a. You know, a, an amazing, amazingly dystopian bottleneck for a few short years, and then we would just have a revolution. Right? Then we, then the guys in their, in their you know, gated communities, making trillions of dollars based on them having you know, gotten close enough to the GPUs uh, that they, that it, you know, some of it rubbed off on them. Um, yeah, they'd be dragged out of their houses and off their Gulf Streams and that we would have a a fundamental reset, we'd have a hard reset of the political system. If I had to put you in a yes or no situation
0: and um, ask your intuition the question now, that if your objective was to, which I'm sure it is, is to encourage the betterment of humanity and to increase our odds of happiness and well-being a hundred years from now, Mm. um, and there was a button placed in front of you, and it would either end the development of artificial intelligence, as we've seen it over the last decade, so it would never, we'd never proceed with developing um, intelligent machines,
1: um, or not. So you could press a button and stop it
0: right now. What, what would you and do? And
1: stop it, stop it permanently, such that we never then do that thing. We just never figure out how to, to build intelligent machines. Pause it indefinitely. Well, I would definitely pause it as, to, to a point where we would, we would could. Get our heads around the alignment problem, yes. permanently. If the button was a
0: permanent pause that you couldn't undo.
1: Well, the question is, how deep does that go? So, like, we we have everything we have now, but we just yes. it just never gets better than yeah, we never make now. progress from here, right? Um,
0: and your objective is to make humanity happy and prosperous.
1: I mean, it's hard because when you when you begin imagining all of the good stuff that we could get with soup with with aligned superhuman ai well then you know then the it's just you know cornucopia upon cornucopia it's just everything is everything is potentially within reach yeah i mean i i take the existential risk scenario seriously enough that i would i would pause it you know i would say i mean i I think we will get we will eventually get to it if 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 curing cancer is a is a biomedical engineering problem that admits of a solution, and I, I think there's every reason to believe it ultimately would be, we will eventually get there based on our own, you know, muddling along with our, you know, current level of tech, you know, currently information tech. Um, I'm, you know, reasonably confident of that. Um, because, I mean, our, you know, our intelligence shows every sign of being general it's just it's not um it's not as fast as we would want it to be it's not it's not what the, the thing that ai is going to give us is it's going to give us uh speed that is um it's, i mean there's speed and then there's the the access there's memory right it's like and like we we can't integrate we don't have the ability we have no person or team of people can integrate all of the data we already have, right? So that, like, the, the the real promise here is that a these systems will be able to find patterns that we wouldn't even know how to look for, and then do something on the basis of those patterns. You know, I think an intelligent search within the data space, you know, by by apes like ourselves, will eventually do uh, most of the the great things we want done, and. You know, the there isn't, there isn't. Uh, I mean, the pro, the problems we need to solve, so as to safeguard the the um, the career of our species, and, and to make civilization durable and sane, and and. Uh, to remove this sort of Damocles that is over our heads at every moment that, you know, at any moment we could just decide to have a, a nuclear war that ruins everything or, or create a, a, an engineered pandemic that ruins everything. We don't need superhuman intelligence to solve all those problems. And we need the, we need an appropriate emotional response to the, the, the untenability of the status quo. And we need, we need a, political dialogue that eventually transcends our, our tribalism. You and I'd say a few others, maybe two or three others, helped change
0: my mind about one of the most profound things I think anyone could believe, which was when I was 18, I, I believed in Christianity. Mm-hmm. And then there was a couple of moments that shook my belief. Nothing on a personal level, just a couple of ideas that managed to sort of in, uh, infect my operating system that led my curiosity towards um, your work. And I changed my mind, profoundly. Yeah. I, it's such a profound change that I had. Um, how do we change our minds? And I, and I, really, wanna, I really wanna focus that question on the, the, individual, the, the individual's mind. Like I wanna change my mind. I want better beliefs, better ideas in my head that are gonna lo- allow me to get out of my own way. Um, because I am not a cheat, I'm miserable. I'm not mm. living the life that I. I would say I, I know I can live, but some people don't even know they can live live a better life. I'm not happy. That's the signal, and I want to I want to yeah. rectify this in some way.
1: Yeah, well, there there are a few bright lines for me. I mean, so like, take um, our ethical lives and our relationships to to other people, right? So um, there's there's the problem of of individual well being that kind of it's still real even if you're in a moral solitude if you're, you're on a desert island by yourself you really don't have ethical questions that are emerging because you're not in relationship to anybody else but you still have the, the problem of how to be happy but so much of our unhappiness is in collaboration with others Right? we're unhappy in our relationships we're unhappy professionally um, and it's worth looking at how we're behaving with other people uh, for me, the, the, the highest leverage change I ever made, and it's, again, it's, it's very easy to spell out and it's very clear, um, and ultimately it's pretty easy, is just to decide that you're not going to lie about anything, really. I mean, it, it, there, there might be some situations in extremis where you'll feel forced to lie but those you know in my view are, are are analogous to acts of violence that you may be forced to to use in self defense right so like a line is sort of the first stage on the continuum of of violence for me right so like i'm not going to lie to someone unless i i recognize that this is not a rational actor who i can possibly collaborate with this is someone i have to be um i have to avoid or defeat or otherwise you know contain the their their propensity to do me harm. Uh, So, yes, if the Nazis come to the door and ask if you've got Anne Frank in the attic, yes, you can lie, or you can shoot them, or you can... These are not normal circumstances. But that aside, every other moment in life where people are tempted to lie um, is one that I I think you can categorically uh, rule out as being unethical and being... Beyond unethical, it's just not it's it's creating a a life you don't when you when you examine it, you don't want to live. Right? I mean the moment you know that you're not gonna to lie to people and they know that about you, um the the it's like all of the dials get the social dials get sort of recalibrated on both sides, and then you find yourself in the presence of, of of people who don't ask you for your opinion unless they really want it right hmm. and then and then when you're honest i mean then then it's, it's it's a night and day difference when you're giving people feedback critical feedback and they know you're honest right they they know their they they're, you know their their bullshit detector is not going off because they just know you're your even when it's not convenient, you're being honest. and Or even when it's not comfortable, you're being honest. Um, one that's incredibly valuable, because basically you're, you're giving them the information that you would want if you were in their shoes, right? Because we, we have this sort of delusion that takes over us when whenever we're tempted to tell a white lie. We imagine, okay, this person doesn't want... It'd be much better for me to just tell them the kind fiction then tell them the the uncomfortable truth right but we don't do the so we don't cr- even calculate the you know for the golden rule there most of the time and we if you if you just took a moment you'd realize oh well, wait a minute does someone who is actually doing a bad job want me to tell them that they're doing a good job and then just send them out into the world to bounce around other people who are going to be recognizing as i just did that the thing they're doing isn't so great right um you're just not doing them a favor right
0: this, this is part of the nature of belief change isn't it that when someone we believe that someone is on our side or we believe from like a political standpoint that they they represent the 99 percent of the views that we represent we're much more likely to change our beliefs so i spoke yeah. to tally Sharot about this the neuroscientist and i wrote about this in a chapter in my upcoming book about how you how you change people's minds and they, they showed in the elections that if like a flat earther says something to a flat earther about the nature of the earth, right. they'll believe it. But if NASA says something to a flat earther, they will just dismiss it on site because the source
1: of that information is not one that they believe or trust or like or believe is yeah. well intentioned. I mean, this this is a bug, not a feature. I mean, it's understandable, but this is something we have to grow beyond because the 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 truth is the truth, right? So you, you can't. I mean, the. And it goes in both directions. The person on your team who you love and respect is capable of, uh, in their very next sentence, of speaking a falsehood, right? Yeah. And you need to be able to to detect that. And conversely, you know, the, the the person you least respect is capable of saying something that's that's quite incisive and worth taking on board. And and so that's we have to we have to have this sort of meta cognitive layer where we're noticing how we're getting played by our our social uh, alliances and recognize that the truth and and rather often important truths are are um uh, evaluated by different principles. I mean it's not a matter of the messenger the messenger. you know you shouldn't shoot the messenger and you shouldn't worship him. You mentioned lying as being a sign Removing lying and being more honest
0: as being a significant step change in your own happiness—is that accurate?
1: In my happiness. In your yeah, own happiness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so yeah immensely. So, because it's, it's it's
0: how pr- practically and specifically how.
1: So you, I mean, when you look at how people ruin their reputations and their relationships and their businesses, their careers, the gateway to all of the misbehavior that accomplishes that is line. It's I mean look at somebody like Lance Armstrong, right? I mean just or Tiger Woods, right? These guys are the absolute apogee of sport. They everyone loves them. Everyone's just amazed at, at what they're what they've accomplished. And yet, you know, the, the dysfunction in their lives just gets vomited up for all to see at a certain point. And it was just enabled at every stage along the way by lying, right? So if, 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 if either of them had early in their career, before they became famous, before they became rich, before they became tempted to do anything um, that was going to uh, derail their lives later on, if they had decided they weren't going to lie, right, they would have found all everything else they, they did to screw up their success impossible. So when I decided, and this was, is this was in the book, this was a course I took at, at Stanford. It was, it was a, a seminar with this brilliant professor, Ron Howard, who, who, who many people, who I think some people in Silicon Valley have taken his course as well. Um, I mean, this, this course was just like a machine. You know, undergraduates and graduate students would come in at, at, on one side and then 12 w- weeks later would come out convinced that basically lying was no longer on the menu, right? It's just, it's just, it was the the, the whole seminar was an, an analysis of the question: Is it ever right to lie? And and we, really, we focused on on white lies. I mean, t- truly tempting lies right? as opposed to the obvious lies that, that screw up people's lives and relationships. Um, it's just so corrosive, and it's corrosive of of relationships in ways that you. Unless you're a student of this kind of thing, you, you don't necessarily notice. I mean, one example I, I believe is in that that's in that book is that I remember my my wife was with a friend, uh, and the two of them were out, and the, the the friend had something she she had to do with another friend later that night, but she didn't really feel like doing it, um, and she got a call from that friend in the presence of my wife, and. She just lied to the friends to get out of the plan, right? She said, "Oh, you know, I'm so sorry, but my, you know, my daughter's got this thing," and it was just a, just a, an utterly facile use of dishonesty to get where she could have she could have just been honest, right? But she just it was just too awkward to be honest, so she just got out of it with a lie. But now it's in the presence of my wife, and my wife is now the the, the immediate question is how many times have i been on the other side of that conversation right how many times has she lied to me in in an equally compelling way about something so trivial right and so it just eroded trust in the in that relationship in a way that the the liar would never have known about would never have detected it because it's just she just went right back to having a good time with you know they were just out to lunch and they continued you know having their lunch and they're still having a good time and it's all smiles but my wife has just logged something about kind of, kind of the ethical limitations of this person, um, and the person doesn't know it, right? And so, once you sort of pull on this thread, you basically your entire life becomes, for at least for the the, the the transition period, until this just becomes a habit you no longer have to consider. Um, suddenly, it's you're you're. The world becomes a kind of mirror thrown up to your mind, and you and you you meet yourself in all these situations where you were avoiding yourself before. So, like someone will say, you know, uh, do you want to have plans, or do you want to do you want to collaborate with me on this project? And if previously you you always had recourse to some kind of white lie that just got you out of you know the awkward. Uh, truth, which is n- the answer, is no, and there are actually reasons why not. Right? Um, you never had to, You never have to confront the the awkwardness of that. You're this kind of person who has these kinds of commitments and this kinds of. You know, it's like I, you know, I mean, the most awkward one would be you know, someone declares a romantic interest in you, and the 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 the, the, the answer is no, and then the and the the it's no for a totally superficial reason, right? Like this person is, is you're not, they're not attractive enough for mm-hmm. you, right? You know, they they're or they're overweight or what? what I mean, it's, it's just it's like you have your reason why not, and this is something you feel you cannot say, right? Now, I'm not saying that you should always go out of your way like like you're someone with Tourette's who just helplessly blurts out the truth. Like there's there's a a scope for for kindness and compassion and, and tact but if someone is going to really drill down on the reasons why not if the person says no I want to know exactly why you don't want to go out with me there's something to discover on 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 either side of that true disclosure right like e- either you are cast back on yourself and you have to realize okay I'm such a superficial person that it doesn't matter who anyone is if they're 10 pounds overweight I'm not interested mm-hmm. right that's that's the mirror held up to your mind it's like okay all right so you're that kind of person do you, do you want to still be that kind of person do you really want to just decide that everyone no matter what their virtues right and no matter what has been going you know what no matter what chaos is going on in their life I and mean, they actually this person might actually lose those 10 pounds next month and you would have a very different situation but are you really not available? Are you really filtering by weight in this way? Um, and are you really comfortable with that? And are you comfortable saying that? Like if, you, if, if somebody forces you to, to actually be honest.
0: We have a closing tradition on this podcast where the last guest leaves a question for the next guest, not knowing who they're going to leave it for. Mm-hmm. The question that's been left for you, impeccable handwriting. Where do you want to be when you die? Describe the place... Time, people, smell, and feeling.
1: <clears throat> well, this, this actually uh, connects with an idea I, I've I've had. I mean, I, I think what we need—we haven't talked about psychedelics here—but um, there's there's been this renaissance in research in psychedelics, and I mean, it's hard to know. I, 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 I'm I'm worried that we could recapitulate some of the the errors of the '60s and and uh, roll this all out in a way that's less than wise. But the wise version would be, I think we need to recapitulate something like the, the mysteries of Eleusis where we, you know, we have rites of passage that are enabled by, in many people's case, psychedelics and, and the the practice of, of meditation. I just think it's, I think these are just fundamental tools of insight that are, that, I mean, for most people, it's it's hard to see how they would get them any other way, right? I just think, you know, there's a longer conversation about which which molecule and how and all that. But another component of this is, I I mean, a a hospice situation where the the experience of dying is as wisely embraced and facilitated as is possible. And I think psychedelics could uh, certainly play a role for, for, for many people there. So I imagine something like we, we need a we need places that are truly beautiful, that where you know people have gone to die and their families can be, visit them there, and it is just a you know a final rite of passage that is that is embraced with you know um, all the wisdom uh, we can muster there and yeah so for in my case you know I would want to be in you know in, in, Currently, I'd be happy to be home, but you know wherever I, uh, home is at that point, I would want a um, I would want a view of the the sky. You know, and it, could, it could be an ocean beneath the sky. That would be ideal. Why? Right. Um, I just I mean, it, 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 there's there's basically nothing that makes me happier than just looking at a blue sky with just just watching like cumulus clouds move across a a blue sky. I mean, it's just like. I can extract so much mental pleasure just looking at that, right? It's just, I mean, it's, um, so yeah, if if I'm going to spend my last, uh, hours of life looking at anything, if my eyes are going to be open, you know, looking at the sky and having.
0: The stars with the sky, the daytime, the sky, sky. the the, the daytime. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I were, if I, light pollution is enough of a thing in my world that I go for, I feel like I go for years without seeing a good (laughs) night sky um, so I've kind of given up hope there, but I do love that. Um, but yeah, just, a, a you know, a view of the sky and with the people I love at that point, uh, who are, who are still alive at that point. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not worried about death in that sense. I mean, I really, I think it's, it, the death part is not a problem. I mean, I, I, I can't say I'm looking for, if, if I can imagine there could be sort of medical chaos and uncertainty and all of the, you know, the weirdness that happens around the the dying process, right? Depending on, um, and there are all kinds of ways to die that I wouldn't choose. Um, but having a nice place to do that, um, with a view of the sky would be the, the, the only solution I think I would require. The question asks the smell give me the smell smell give me an ocean breeze i have put an ocean there so yeah an ocean breeze would be perfect Sam thank you so much
0: thank you yeah. for um not just this conversation as i said to you before you sat down you were pivotal in um really helping me to unpack some problems when i was younger some conflicts i should describe them as mm-hmm. with my my view on religious belief and um and the nature of the world but i think more more importantly you didn't you didn't rob me of my religious beliefs and leave me with nothing you left me with something else which is something that was really important to me which was the idea that there can still be great meaning and there can be what you describe as spirituality in the absence or in the place of um that religious belief religious belief gives people you know a lot of things and i I, it's funny because when i was religious and i went on the Mm. journey to becoming agnostic let's say um i was in conflict with people as in, I would yeah, I would want to have yeah. a debate with everybody. Yeah. And I spent those two years watching everything that you and Richard Dawkins and, and Hitchens had all done. And then I came out the other side. And it was peaceful. Right. Yeah. And it's you believe what you want, I'll believe what I want. Um, as long as we're not causing any conflicts with each other and you're not doing any harm, it's okay. Yeah. And then I discovered what I would call my own spirituality, which is my meaning, the meaning that I see in the world around me and um and the self and things like psychedelics. And it's a it's a better place to be and it removed yeah. my fear of death which i had as a religious person <laughs> oh
1: nice, nice. Well, that's
0: good so thank you yeah thank you for that and all oh. your subsequent work which you know incredible books you've written so many of them that are absolutely incredible you've got an unbelievable podcast which i was gorging on before you came here as well in an app um which i mean if you could speak just a few sentences about the, the meaning of the app and w- what you do i know it's much more than meditation now mm. but i think people listening to this
1: might be compelled to to check it out and download it yeah, well so I, I had that book which you're holding, Waking Up, which is the um, uh, which is where I talk about my experience in meditation and just how I fit it into a a um, a scientific secular worldview. Um, and just it just turns out that an app is a much better delivery system for that kind of information. I mean it's just hearing audio is you don't even need you don't need video. I, mean, I think audio is the perfect medium for it. So when that technology came about, or when I discovered it um i just felt incredibly lucky to be able to to build it and so it's it's kind of outgrown me now there are many many teachers on it and many other topics beyond meditation that are touched but um it's a uh, it really subverts all of the problems that you know some of which we touched upon here with the with the smartphone i mean like the smartphone has become this this tool of fragmentation for us. It fragments our attention. It continually interrupts our experience. It's it, depending on how you use it. Um, but most of what we do with it, you know, you're checking Slack, you're checking your email, you're checking your social media. You're, you're just, it's punctuating your life with, with all these, it's, you know, at this point, seemingly necessary interruptions. But this app or, you know, any, really any app like it that's delivering this kind of content subverts all that because it's just this is this is it's just a platform where you're getting audio that is guiding you in a specific very specific use of attention and a sort of reordering of your priorities and getting you to to recognize things about your experience that you 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 wouldn't otherwise see and yeah an app is it just by sheer good luck, it turns out it's it's just the the perfect delivery system for that information. So yeah, I just feel very lucky to to have stumbled upon it because again, you know, ten years ago there were no apps, and you know, there's just it was just all I could do was write a book. You know. Sam, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so pl- much for your generosity. You. Yeah, a pleasure and, to meet you. And as and well. congratulations with everything. I mean, it's really it's. Oh, thank uh, you. I was catching up on your podcast in mm. anticipation of this and. It's amazing Mm. the
0: the reach you've got now so yeah it's wonderful nuts we're all still trying to catch up with it but it's a credit to all of the team and i really want to say from the bottom of my heart thank you because the work you do is is really really important um it's been important in my life as i've said but it's just really important and we i feel like we're living in a world where like nuance and all the things you've talked about and openness to debate and honest dialogue us we're getting further and further away from there so if there's anyone left in this world that's still willing to engage on that level i feel like They must be protected at all costs. And I see you as one of those people. So thank you.
1: Nice. Nice. Well, to be continued.